Good morning. I'm glad that microphone worked, Marcus. I have such a larger head than most of the guys that wear that microphone that that took a while to get it fitted to me. So. <laughs> we'll just stop there. Oh, I'm so excited to have the opportunity to share the Word of God with you this morning, um, especially as we continue our study in the uh, book of 1 John. Uh, I, I have to confess, it's been over three years since I've stood behind a pulpit to preach, and I would literally feel safer if I had a guitar in front of me than this pulpit. Um, it's so much more natural to me at this point. But I'm honored that the elders uh, would give me the opportunity to present the Word of God, and I pray the Holy Spirit has been working in your hearts this morning, even before you arrived, so that you would receive what the Lord has in store for you today. Um, I do apologize in advance that uh, there are no notes or an outline this morning. Time was not uh, kind this week flying by, but I encourage you to take notes in an old school fashion in the margins of your Bible, if you will, or on paper notes that you have Mike brought with you. Also, there's going to be a ton of scriptural cross-references this morning, and, uh, and I don't expect you to look all those up. And I'll be referring back to the chapter over and over often, so keep a finger in your paper Bibles or a thumb ready to swipe on your phone or tablet. Um, even with the, the depth that Pastor Billy and Hugh have preached the first two chapters, I kind of feel like I need to remind you, this is 1 John from a bird's eye's view. Um, there, there's so much more that can be mined from these five chapters that I want to encourage you to spend time reading and meditating on this book as much as you can during the week. It's such a small book, but it's so filled with depth. Um, and it would be a great encouragement to you if you do that during the week. And I also want to remind us of a truth that our pastors consistently and faithfully call us to before we read scripture all the time, that, that this is no ordinary book. This is no ordinary reading. It's not simply a history book, a moral rule book, or a book of commands to follow, although it is all those as well. It's the living, breathing Word of God. He speaks to us. This morning, He will speak to us through His Holy Word. It says it's useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, his written word is absolutely enough. It is absolutely sufficient. And we're going to stand in just a minute. We're going to read 1 John chapter 3 all the way through. But before we read, I also want to point out beyond the sufficiency of the written word that we're hearing from John in his older years. We believe he's probably in his 70s or 80s at the time that he's writing this. And he's experienced not only life, but enough life following Jesus that he has no doubt that the things that he is writing are absolutely true. Um, I'm sure that most of you would agree with me. The older you get, especially the older saints here in the church, the, the older that you get, the more assurance that you have that the Word of God is true because you've walked with Him, you've experienced it. And so the Word of God that was sufficient now has been experienced, and you're able to say with 100% positivity what I say, what I read here in Scripture is true. So... Um, he's experienced this in his writing. And as we read these words in John chapter, first, uh, first John chapter three, listen to them through the passion and zeal of an apostle who has given his life to living unto Christ and sharing that word so that others might do the same. So will you stand with me as we read God's word? First John chapter three. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. 
Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this, we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray real quick. For the, for the, the beginning of this sermon, Lord, would you just take away all notion that there is a, a man that can speak in a way that is more powerful than what we just read? Would you take away any hindrances that would blind us to what John wants us to see this morning? Would you take away any pride that would keep us from that reality? And Lord, would you use it to change hearts, to mend the hearts that need to be mended, that are broken, and would you use it to break the hearts that need to be broken, that are, that are above and haughty and prideful, Lord? Both sides, Lord, you are powerful to do. And so we give it all to you, and we pray that your word would speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the, for the first two weeks of our series in First John, the worship team has led us through a song called The Father's Love. Uh, it, it's been wonderful. We brought it back into the mix and, and everyone has sang it so well. In the chorus, we sing about how, much, uh, how wonderful the Father's love is for us. And man, do you sing. Man, do you sing. And you've gotten better at singing. Let me just tell you what a blessing it is to the worship team to stand up here and hear you sing. But this morning I sat here and man, that was even better because I just wouldn't even, I just hear you just flying past my ears, praising God with your song. It's such a joy to hear you singing with such passion, and uh, we want to keep that passion today. Our main focus on today's text is really to focus in on the same theme of that song, the Father's love. And I would submit to you that it's easier to sing about the Father's love on a Sunday together than it is to confess it alone in the midst of maybe a mundane, hard work week when the furthest thing from our mind is the Father's love for us. Um, so we want to challenge that this morning and actually get it into our system that we can sing about how wonderful the Father's love is, but we can confess it even in the most mundane of days, the darkest of hours. The main point of today's sermon is that when we truly see how wonderful the Father's love is for us, then it changes everything. It changes our view of God. It changes our understanding of our identity, and it changes the way that we live our lives. It is the picture of disturbed, delighted, and devoted that Billy just mentioned in the confession. So let's go ahead and dive in. 
John is writing to a young church that's under attack from within by false teachings and heresies, mainly from the Gnostics. Hugh mentioned them last week. He's writing to give assurance to those who are truly saved. And as Billy said in the, in the first sermon on this uh, book, he is writing to set the doctrinal, the moral, and the relational distinctives that separate the children of God from the children of the devil. Man, that, that phrase sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? The children of the devil. I mean, wouldn't it be more polite or polished to say, he writes these things to show who the children of God are and who they're not. Or he writes these things to show the difference between the godly uh, and the world. But John uses clear words of distinction. If he was using modern day terminology, he'd probably say that phrase that we're familiar with, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it probably is a duck, right? Uh, that's not very acceptable in today's identity-challenged world, but John makes a clear case by using clear words of distinction. He's using these distinctive uh, words and uh, making it clear because he wants his readers to know that there's no middle ground when it comes to making a proclamation that you love the Lord. No middle ground at all. And, and just to be clear, uh, we've said this before, but to be clear, he's not talking about absolute perfection. He's not talking about legalism. He's talking about fruit. The foundation for 1 John, and specifically in our text today, is reflective of Jesus' words in Matthew 7, when he said, you will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So as we look at today's text, ask the Lord to show you what kind of fruit you are bearing so that we could see whether our identity is completely in Christ and we can have assurance that we are his children. And John wants us to see this. He starts by wanting us to see what kind of uh, love the Father has for us. So that's our first point. What we see defines our identity. Verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Let me read it a different way. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. See the different inflection? First John is a book of identity. Look, behold, understand, believe, see. Do you see? Can't you see? It's that kind of inflection in his, in his voice. John speaks with the passion of a father that's longing to show us a child something incredible. It's not like, hey, take a look at this, or did you see that? It's more like the first time you see the ocean and you're overwhelmed by its size and its power. Maybe you're fearful of it. It's like when you see the birth of your first child and you're, you weep with joy and amazement. It's that kind of sea. It's the, the sight given to the blind man. It's that kind of joy that comes from what he's seen. Look at the kind of love God has shown to us that we should be called his children. Well, the we defines so much of the kind of love the Father shows to us. Think about it. We, who were once filled with all manner of unrighteousness, covetous, malice. We, who were full of envy, murder, strife, and deceit. We, who were gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, and boastful. We, who were inventors of evil. And if you think that you've been left out and you're not described yet, we who were disobedient to parents, that's probably, and not probably, that is all of us, who were foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. I think I've covered everyone, including myself. He says, we, we are now called children of God. What kind of love does that? A love that is stronger and bigger, and more unbreakable, and more undeniable than anything we could ever imagine. I think that may be the reason that John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. At least five times during our study of the book of John, uh, he refers to himself in that same way. 
the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I always assumed that it was just because Jesus had this relationship with him that was just a little bit better than the other disciples. It's just a little closer. And there are some proofs to that. And I think that may be part of it, certainly be true. But, but listen to what John Piper has to say about it. He says, calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved could be John's way of saying, my most important identity is not my name, but my being loved by Jesus, the son of God. Man, he's not trying to rob anybody else of this privilege. He's simply rejoicing in it. He's saying, do you want to know who I am? You don't need to know my name. You need to know that I'm loved. I'm loved by Jesus. That's who I am. And if we read 1 John correctly, I think that's what John wants us to see when he says, see, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Children of God and children of the light. In, John 1, in, in, in chapter 1 of 1 John, he says, God is light. And if God is light, then we are his children, then we must be children of the light. So listen to this. Our identity is children of the light, loved by Jesus. That's who we are as Christians. Children of the light, loved by Jesus. Does that register with you this morning? Shouldn't that identity change the way we view everything? Anxious about the future? I am a loved child of God. Fearful of others' opinions? I'm a loved child of God. Insecure about your weaknesses? I'm a loved child of God. Facing an illness or even death, I am a loved child of God. So what we see about the Father's love defines our identity. We can't live as children of God until we first see and understand that we are His. Point two. Secondly, what we see changes us forever. Our identity as loved children of God motivates us to be set apart. It's the source of our positional holiness that we receive as heirs in Christ upon salvation, and it's the motivation of our practical holiness as we continue our walk in sanctification. In fact, the implication is that we are so set apart, or supposed to be so set apart, that the world does not know us. We continue reading there in verse 1 and 2. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. What fellowship? Scripture says, what fellowship does light have with darkness? None. No fellowship means no knowing. You don't have fellowship with a stranger, and you most certainly don't have fellowship with an enemy. Fellowship, not acquaintances, fellowship. The world doesn't know us because it can't. It can't have fellowship with the light while it is still in darkness. When you turn on a light in a room, the, light doesn't, the dark doesn't just hang around and then decide to leave eventually. It has nothing to do with the light. It is gone immediately. And so it is with God, who is light. And so it is with his children, children of the light. The world does not know us because they do not know him. And you know, even in that, there's the mercy and love of God. Christ showed it to us. He showed us his wonderful love even while he was hanging on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they do. They didn't know what they were doing and they most certainly didn't know who they were doing it to. First Corinthians says, had they known, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. John says, this is our situation right now as believers. This is a black and white situation right now as believers. It's all ready. But he tells us that we have just begun to look like the children of God. Just begun. We have a small glimpse of the light. But when Jesus returns, then we'll see face to face. We see dimly now. Then when he returns, we will be like him because we will see him fully for who he is. And as his children, we should hope to be like him. Verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 
We hope to be like him, and we practice to be like him. Isn't that the sign of being a good father or a good mother? Our children should want to be like us. Now, I'm not saying that in a prideful way. I don't think it's a prideful thing if you put it in this context. If you're striving to be a godly man, then that's what you want most for your sons to do. If you're striving to be a godly wife and mother, then that's what you want most for your daughters to do. High education and success in the world are low standards for the Christian parent. A child who hopes that they will be like their mom or dad and practices to be like their godly mom and dad is evidence that the parents exampled righteousness and a right relationship with Jesus. So we as children of God want to be like him. We desire to be just like him. And so we purify ourselves as he is pure. So what we have so far is that John has pulled back the curtain so that he might reveal the most amazing thing to us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. You're no longer children of wrath, but children of light. He loved you and paid the price for your sins. And not only that, but then he adopted you and he calls you his own. Not not only that, now you are his and because the world in darkness cannot have fellowship with him, or know him, it will also not have fellowship with you or know you. That's, that's the progress there. And so then he says, don't be surprised that as you grow in holiness, that the world knows less and less of you because they do not know what they do. There will be persecution just as our Lord was persecuted. You can count on it. But you know what else you can count on? You can count on the fact that that's okay. Because just as John was the disciple whom Jesus loved, I'm the sinner whom Jesus loved. And that's now my identity. My hope is in him, regardless of persecution. And I hope to be like him in part now, but I hope and I know I will be like him in full when I see him face to face. This is where John is bringing us to. The curtain can't even contain it. You might as well rip it off of the the curtain uh, pole, uh, rod, whatever it's called. You know what I mean? Yeah. We have seen changes. What we have seen changes us forever. It changes us spiritually. It changes us positionally. And it changes our identity for all eternity. Thirdly, what we have seen sets us apart. Now, John moves into this series of positive and negative statements and and then also defining foundational statements so that he might further increase that big gap of a valley that separates the children of God from the world. First John, again, is a book of identity, so he's opening case after case after case of evidence for proof of our salvation. He says in verse 4 and 5, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So first, he gives us the definition of sin and the foundational statement that Jesus is without sin and he came to take it away. But then he continues in verse 6 through 8. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy those works of the devil. Now here, John takes a sword, and he literally carves the divide even deeper between those who would be called sons of God and sons of the devil. And the way you view it is on one hand, he offers a truth to his readers so that they may examine themselves, they may examine their salvation with fear and trembling, And he says, there's no gray area, guys. You either are one or the other. He says, don't be deceived and don't deceive yourself. It's not possible to live in the gray area. I'm I'm of the generation that that, uh, we we were the first ones to see American Idol. Okay, anybody familiar with the show? First ones. And and now they do it all polished because everybody's nice and you can't offend anybody. But the original show had a judge on there that was not kind in any way, shape, or form. And they would literally bring people... I don't know if you know this. I actually tried out for American Idol. So glad I didn't make it on the show. <laughs> but the original, the original cast, they would bring people in. The producers would bring people in that were embarrassing. Horrifically embarrassing. Ratings go up, right? 
That's what they did. They brought them in and people would sing and they'd say, I was born for this. Everyone tells me that I was born for this, that I was made for this, that I'm, I'm ready for this. And the judges would say, they lied to you. Someone should have told you the truth. So when he says, let no one deceive you, I don't think the emphasis is on being deceived and thinking someone else is a Christian. I think the emphasis is on not letting anyone deceive you into thinking that you're a child of God when you live practicing sin. And unfortunately, we have a slew of churches in our modern Christianity that are, are preaching and, and pay no attention to sin, but still will affirm your salvation. First John doesn't do that. He's telling you, someone should tell you the truth. And on the other hand, he offers encouragement to believers by using specific verbiage. He uses the phrase, makes a practice. Praise God he uses that phrase. <laughs> this is the encouragement to all believers. He who makes a practice of sinning, he who makes a practice of righteousness. This is the encouragement to us. We will still sin as long as we live in these bodies and as long as we live in this fallen world. But if we are not making a practice of sinning, then we are not of the devil. If we are making a practice of righteousness, then we are children of God. Uh, Paul Washer gives this great example of growing up a farmer's kid and having to get up when he was five years old, six years old, seven years old, and follow his father out with buckets to go feed some animal. And he said, and it's dark and it's wet and it's muddy. And he said, and I try to stay upright with these two huge buckets. They're weighing me down. I'm a tiny kid by stepping into my father's footprints in front of me as he walks. He said that he looked like a spider on crack because he could barely do it. He could barely do anything, and he stumbled, and he fell all the time. But he said, if you had seen me from a distance, you would have seen a child following in the footsteps of his father. He was making a practice of it. John then opens another case of evidence. In verse 9 and 10, he says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So again, the language John uses here is so clear. He says, no one born of God. Speaking of the spiritual birth, he's using the same language that Jesus used with Nicodemus in John 3.3 when he says, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In this language, John is saying the simplest and the most profound statement all at the same time. And here it is. The children of God can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. You see that? The children of God can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. He didn't say the children of God can't keep sinning if they want to stay children of God. He didn't say the children of God can keep sinning and, and still be children of God. The children of God can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. Our new identity as his adopted heirs keeps us from practicing a sinful life. There's, when I was studying for this, there's an old hymn that came to my mind that I grew up singing in the church, and I I'm, know I'm, many of you will know it. And it can be rather controversial in some circles because people get into the weeds about the doctrine of election versus decisionism in the verbs, in the verbiage that's being used. But the history of the song is not about a man with enough resolve to sing these words. It's about the impossibility of being changed by God and then being able to change back. So this is the history. About 150 years ago, there's a great revival in Wales, United Kingdom. And as a result of this, many missionaries from both England and Germany went to the northeast uh, part of India to spread the gospel. And at the time, northeast India was not divided into states like it is today. It was just a bunch of tribes, uh, hundreds and hundreds of tribes. And these missionaries were not welcome by these tribes, not in the least. One Welsh missionary did succeed, however, in converting a man and his entire family to Christianity. The man's faith was contagious, very contagious, and many of those villagers began to accept Christianity, and that made the village chief super angry. 
very angry, so much so that he summoned all the villagers, and then he called the original family that had first converted, and he put them in front of everyone and said, you must renounce your faith right here in public or face execution. And the Indian convert answered to the chief. His answer to the chief became the hymn that we know so well. He said, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. That's what he said. What we have seen sets us apart, and what we have seen cannot be unseen. If you've been truly born again, then your identity is no longer a child of the world or a child of the devil, but a child of God. That's the hope. That's the, the, the beautiful part of this. This new identity can never be changed back. There's no turning back. Even in the face of great persecution or death, there's no turning back. Even if no one goes with you, you cannot turn back. Not because you have some new sense of resolve in yourself, but because you've seen the full measure of God's love for you. And it's a light that is brighter and hotter than the sun. You cannot turn back. There's no denying Jesus anymore. And praise God, Jesus will never deny you. So, in the first half of this chapter in John, of 1 John 3, he has really laid the foundation for the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. But he's given the why. Why? Because he first loved you and how great was his love. Then in verse 10, he shifts to the lane of the foundation for the second greatest command, to love your neighbor as yourself. And he gives us more evidence towards our identity as children of God, as well as application of what it really looks like to love our neighbor as ourselves. Look at verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And then we'll, we'll transition here in a second. But the fourth point is this. What we have seen, we want others to see. At the end of verse 10, John adds, if you don't practice righteousness, he says that. But then he says this. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. You've heard it from the beginning. The beginning of what? Well, John's referring, referring to uh, is, is the first time his readers heard the gospel. And he goes back, actually, he, you could see him reflecting back to his own uh, gospel, John 13, whenever Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is not just a one-time thing. This is a foundation lane that's happening, and it happens all over the New Testament. Jesus mentions this command to love one another again in John 15 and again in 17. Paul mentions its importance in Romans 12.10 when he says, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. He mentions it again in 1 Thessalonians 4.9. Peter tells believers to love one another in 1 Peter 1.22, and John continues this over and over and over all throughout 1 John. John is telling the readers, you know the, basic, uh, the basics of practical Christian living that were taught to you when you first became disciples. We started with this, love one another. So John, in the beginning of the chapter, points out our identity by pleading, see what kind of love the Father has shown to us. And then he goes into, how can we love one another if we cannot see the measure with which God loved us first? We can't. Then he points out the first application of this. How can we see how deep the Father's love for us is and then turn around and hate others? The answer is we can't. Remember, he says, by this it is evident who are the children of God, those who practice righteousness and those who love their brothers. Then he gives us the absolute oldest original example of hating your brother. He goes back to Genesis and he calls our attention to Cain and Abel. Verse 12 and following, he says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, who was a child of the devil, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. 
Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He says, we know that the Lord was not pleased with Cain's offering. And it could be because Cain didn't offer what God had commanded in the sacrifices. I've heard some say that it was because Abel offered God's creation and Cain offered his own works through his own uh, bounty of his crop. Whatever the reason, Abel's offering was unacceptable. It was, it was uh, I'm sorry, Abel's offering was acceptable and pleasing to the Lord and Cain's wasn't. And that made Cain look bad. And that's the source of so much of our hatred. Because all it takes for us to naturally feel ill will towards someone is that person makes us look bad. When someone embarrasses us or makes us look bad, our pride can turn from bitterness and hatred, uh, can, pride can turn to bitterness and hatred and go from frozen to boiling in a millisecond. And so we are warned not to be like Cain, who was of the evil one. See, Cain hated Abel because his deeds were evil and Abel's were righteous. So we shouldn't be surprised when the world hates the children of God because ill will teaches us to hate and revenge that which we should admire and imitate. Satan's children, like Cain, hate the children of God because their lives underscore the difference between them. We hate the children of God because your lives of righteousness expose our unrighteousness. We hate the children of God because your lives of light shine and expose our lives of dark. So then grace gives birth to faith and being a child of God, while sin gives birth to death and being a child of the devil. Again, there is no gray area in these two identities. So if we are children of God and is evidenced by our love for one another, then how are we to love one another? I'm so glad you asked. Verse 16 and following, he says, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So this first implies a general love to all humanity, which we should have. We love all people because they are all formed in the image of God. And because whether, because whether they're saved or not, we've been on both sides of that. And so we have grace more naturally because we understand both sides of that as Christians. Secondly, it implies a more specific love towards the brothers, towards other believers. If God has shown such a wonderful love towards us, then surely we should love those who God loves. Well, I think that sometimes we read this passage and we focus on the example of Jesus dying for us. Jesus died for us so that we should love uh, by, by being willing to die for others, right? But how often do we really get to play that out? I mean, it's going to be super rare, if not uh, non-existent, that we get to play out the scenario of throwing ourselves in front of a bullet for someone else, right? I think it would do all, uh, we'd, we'd like to think we were capable of doing that. And when the time come that we would just pass the test and be that heroic person. But the true test of whether we lay down our life for someone is if we'll live a life of sacrifice for them. I submit to you, it'd be easier to die for someone than to live a life in service and love and humble submission to them until we die of an old age. I think so. I think if you've been married any time at all, you'd think it would be easier to throw myself in front of a bullet than to, right? I will be heroic in that case. But get up and do the dishes and take care of a child whenever you've got your hands full. And mm. uh, Matthew Henry is one of my favorite commentators, and, and, and he digs even deeper into this. And, and I just want to read this section from his commentary. He says this, This should be the temper and effect of our Christian love. It must be in the highest degree so fervent as to make us willing to suffer even to death for the good of the church, for the safety and salvation of the dear brethren, or 
Listen to this. This digs deeper. In exposing ourselves to hazards when called thereto for the safety and preservation of those that are more serviceable to the glory of God and the edification of the church than we can be. How mortified should the Christian be to this life? You see what he's saying? He's saying not only willing to suffer and die for the brothers, but willing to live in such a way that we would see another brother who is more useful to the church, that it would be better for me to step back and die to my pride so that he could be more uh, used to the glory of God. Do we know anything of that kind of humility? That's the kind of humiliation Jesus exampled for us. Not just by going to the cross, mind you. He exampled it for us simply in condescending from his throne at the right-hand seat of God to down to a stable filled with hay and animal stench and sin. He set it all aside and said, nope, I will become the least here. I will become something I am totally not because I love them. The second application, he goes on, our love for one another should also be seen in our consideration of each other's needs. And this is very close to our hearts as we come to this season of, quote, giving, right? And close to our hearts as we think about those that we serve in Rancho 3M and was close to our heart as we think about those in Nepal that need uh, just a tent to live in. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Well, he says this on the heels of telling us not to be like Cain in his murderous hate. There's a lot more gravity to it. And again, I think our tendency when reading this text is, is to agree with it, but to minimize it. Yes, we shouldn't be like Cain. Who would murder, murder his brother over something like that? That's so ridiculous and crazy. I would never do that. Okay, well, John is a great preacher. You know why? Because he likes to meddle into the lives of his reader. And he says, so you won't murder your brother like Cain. Okay, but will you serve your brother or sister when they are in need? Or is that too much? Leviticus 25, 35 says, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner and he shall live with you. So when we're able to meet a physical need, but we don't, isn't that called neglect? Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So when you're able to share joy with the sorrowful, but don't, isn't that called indifference? Sorrow shared is cut in half and joy shared is doubled. So let's be honest though, it takes some effort. In fact, many times it takes a lot of effort to share in someone's sorrow. And sometimes it takes great humility to rejoice in someone's rejoicing. But when we do so, we share joy with them. Or what about our ultimate calling as believers, the great commission to go and make disciples? When you are able to share the gospel with the lost, but don't, would we call that hatred? Let me ask you a question. Is the hatred defined as just doing harm to someone? Or is it also neglecting to do good to someone? A few years ago, this story really struck me. Uh, Penn Gillette from the famous magician duo, Penn and Teller. He told the story of a man that he pulled from the audience to participate in one of his magic tricks. And after the magic trick was over, the man handed him a New Testament Bible. And he told Penn, he said, I, I'm, I'm not crazy. I'm not a preacher. Uh, I'm just a businessman who's a Christian. And I just, I really wanted to share the gospel with you. And Penn had this to say about the encounter. Penn is a, a, a devout atheist, by the way. He said, he was kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me. And then he gave me this Bible. I've always said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? That was his response. <laughs> Sometimes the atheist can say the deepest things to convict. Our identity as children of God is evidenced in our love for others, in providing for their base physical needs, all the way to their ultimate need of hearing the gospel. What we have seen, we want others to see. 
Because what we have seen, the depth of the love of God that completely changed us, is the only thing worth seeing. And finally, our final point. What we have seen gives us confidence. Verse 19 and following. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another. Just as he commanded us, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So we can have assurance of our salvation. Praise God. We can have assurance of our identity as children of God. We can truly see the kind of love the father has shown us. And we can have confidence when he calls us his children. We can have confidence when we stand before him. We can have confidence when we pray, and we can have confidence he will answer our prayers. We can have confidence in his word, and we can have confidence in his coming. There are two reactions to the return of Christ, and those are based on the two identities that we've studied today. When Jesus returns, you will either have confidence as his child, or you will shrink away in shame as a child of wrath. John is clear in his distinctions throughout this entire chapter, but he's not trying to be divisive just for division's sake. His hope is the same as my hope for you this morning, that if you are lost and your heart condemns you, then please repent. Turn and see what kind of love the Father has shown to you. Surrender all and cry out to him for salvation, and he will make you one of his children. He will save you to an eternity with him, but he will also save you to a life of truth and light and love that can't be contained right here, right now. And then the other prayer is, if that you're a believer, then remember who you are in Christ. Stop and remember the kind of love the Father has shown to you. And then abide in him. Abide in it. Abide in him by what? Keeping his commandments and loving one another. Then you will have peace to walk boldly in this life here, right now. You will have assurance that you can finish the race that was set before you. And you can have confidence when he returns that he might say, Well done, good and faithful servant, my child. Josh, will you go ahead and come up? In our last discipleship group meeting that we had, um, the group started to talking, talking about the two ditches that we are familiar with that um, many in the Bible Belt fall into. Because we're a Bible Belt, but there's not a whole lot of Bible left in it, it seems. Um, and so there's a lot of things that that would cause us to not stay on the road, but fall into one side or the other, the ditches on both sides. And on one side, we live in an area that's filled with what I like to call good old boy Christianity, the kind of Christianity one claims when they grew up in the church and, and uh, maybe their parents were Christians or they, they had a church-going family and maybe good morals were passed down by the parents or maybe from the pastor or a youth pastor. And so a confession is made that I'm a Christian. But the truth is, is that they never really saw or experienced the Father's love. And their identity is more defined by the darkness of the world. But they don't know it because it's been twisted and presented as good when it is evil. The Word of God says that you cannot have fellowship with God who is light if you are in that camp. The other ditch to fall in is for believers, for Christians that have truly been saved, but because of legalistic teaching or maybe bad examples, they live under a weight of constantly striving to please God through good works, and they don't really ever fully understand or see God's love for what it is. You are His. That's my encouragement today. But you can't fathom that you call He calls you His child or His heir. You are. 
it says that in the beginning, and he calls us children of God, and so you are his adopted one whom he loves. And maybe you're here this morning and you fall into one of these ditches. I hope that this passage in 1 John 3 today made it clear to you that there's a foundation of evidence to look to when examining your salvation. But I also hope that you can see what kind of love the Father has shown to you and that you would be in awe of your adoption as a child of God. And I hope that you will take that love and let it overflow to your family, to your brothers in Christ, to your neighbors, and even as Jesus did, to your own enemies. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Don't let anything I say disturb the clear words that John has presented to us this morning. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you can make clear, you can translate everything that was said this morning and make it touch a heart in a way that that no words could ever do. And so we just ask that your power has been doing that since before we arrived this morning and has continued doing that through the entire service and the sermon. And that now as hearts are wrestling with what has been said, Lord, that you would, as, as Billy prayed before the service this morning, that, that if there's a person here that has been putting their faith in all of their works, a person here that is, has not seen the Father's love, that they would truly have their eyes opened and that the opening of their eyes would show them something so amazing, so profound, so unbelievable that they could not help but to fall to their knees and say, I need you. And on the other side of that, Lord, if there's someone here this morning that is saved and, and, and struggles with understanding that you love them, You didn't just save them so that they could go to heaven one day. You saved them to an abundant life that starts upon salvation. An abundant life submitted to you, obeying you because we love you, because we long to please you, because we long to be pure as you are pure, because we can't help but love you because you loved us first. And then an amazing love that just can't help but be contained and we have to just pour it out onto others that we see and others that we're encountering. Lord, may sovereign grace as a church be that kind of church, Lord, that when someone comes here, all we see is people that have had such an encounter with the vision of God's love for them, such an understanding of how great and how deep and how wide the Father's love is for them. They have to be disturbed or delighted and then leave devoted. We love you. May your will be done. In Jesus' name.